First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Well, good morning. Well, that was a little weak. Good morning. Excellent. That was wonderful. Well, Pastor, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. And uh, my wife, Jill, and I did so enjoy doing uh, this marriage conference because we believe in marriage. Uh, you know, we've uh, done these marriage conferences over the years, and uh, we're passionate to see God work miracles in marriages, marriages that are strong, marriages that are kind of on coast, marriages that are flagging, and marriages that are failing. Here's the reality. What we've seen over and over and over again is God performs miracles in marriage. Do you know why? Because the God that we worship loves to take broken things and mend them. He loves to take wounded things and heal them. This is the God that we serve. And you know, there's a lot of voices out there on marriage today. And uh, a lot of voices will say this, that, and the other. And, and right now, I, you know, I do believe there is an assault on marriage. It's long-term viability in our society. People are telling us, oh, well, marriage is a has-been concept. Marriage isn't necessary. I mean, if we're living together, that's fine. I don't need marriage to uh, help raise a family. It's not worth it. I've seen too many traumas in marriages, either around me or growing up. I don't want to mess with that. But my friends, here's what I want to say to you today. I believe that God can perform miracles in marriage. That's true. But listen, I want to tell you God can perform miracles in your life. Now, that's not just preacher talk. I've seen that in my life. I've seen that in family members' lives. The fact that I'm standing here before you today is a miracle. And I've got to tell you, uh, amidst all these voices in our world, uh, there's one voice, as that bumper uh, told us, we need to hear. Let's talk about voices. Isn't it true that our lives are haunted by voices? Think about the voices in your life. Some of these voices help on a regular basis. Some voices hurt. Some voices are external to us, but some voices are internal to us. We may be living with the echoes of the voices of parents or guardians in your lives saying, you're not worth it. You're not worthy. You're not going to amount to anything. Maybe we find the voices are too loud, but listen. Voices aren't just from what we hear out there. The din of discord and cacophony of voices parade themselves on our devices. How many of you have an iPhone or a device right now? Wave it at me so I can see it. Oh my goodness, someone's uh, scrolling Facebook. That's, that's a problem. <laughs> Don't do that. You think about our devices, boy, they control our lives more than we like to admit. We mindlessly, aimlessly scroll, tweet, like, heart, snap, video, text, and DM to the degree where we can't focus, and we find ourselves distracted 
but more seriously, we find ourselves depressed. Screens aren't the only problem. Not only the voices out there or the voices inside or screens. <laughs> what about the voices uh, that we hear in public speech? Our speakers oftentimes spew hate, or at the very least, division. Political parties pool resources seemingly to divide. And my goodness, the nightly news. We're divided out in our communities, and sadly, too often, we're divided in our church. It's noisy out there. It's hard to hear a kind word, or at least a fair word. We act before we think, and we speak before we listen. And the voices we hear on the news or on our screens may not encourage us. In fact, they do quite the opposite. And considering the volume of what we hear, isn't it challenging that the voices that emerge in our own minds, in our own heads, tell us false narratives about ourselves? It might be because of the echoes of family members in the past or a performance issue that we have where we think, I've got to perform, I've got to perform. And at the end of the day, your own internal monologue is telling you, you're not worth it. You're not amounting to anything. And we hear false narratives about ourselves leading us to destructive thoughts and noisy negativity. In our own community back home, we, uh, well, we do chapel every week in, at uh, OBU every Wednesday. Um, and uh, one of our students, who's, uh, I, I'm trying, she's a, one of our ministry majors, uh, she came up after chapel, and oftentimes we have some of our faculty or staff or I go down, and uh, we receive prayer uh, for some of the things our students are going through. And she came up and she said, have you heard about the student uh, in Tecumseh? And I said, no. At any rate, this eighth, eighth grader uh, sadly took his life. Eighth grade. My son had played basketball against him the week before. And uh, we don't know all the details, but one of the things that uh, the student said was we're concerned that it was um, bullying and negativity on the basketball team and in school. So that the voice that boy heard was only the negative voice, and he told that narrative to himself. Now, we don't know all the details, but that story just reminds us that noisy negativity in our own heads can lead to destructive, destructive behaviors. A lot of noise out there, a lot of voices. And oftentimes we contribute to the noise that we lament. We're guided by voices. But amidst this wall of sound out there, whose voice do we need to hear? And I'm not talking about a podcast, and I'm not talking about uh, a newscast, and I'm not talking about a TikTok video, whose voice is most needful for our lives? My friends, I believe without any shadow of a doubt, what we need to hear is the voice of God. See, God's voice is clear truth that cuts through discord and din. Today, we're hearing the voice of God regarding relationships. Firstly, our relationship with God, and then relationship with a couple that illustrates our relationship with God. 
And we hear this from the book of Hosea. So if you have your Bible, turn to Hosea chapter 1. And we're going to read the whole chapter and move to chapter 2, verse 1, which serves in the original Hebrew as a unit. Now, you'll have to forgive me because I am an Old Testament professor and I love the Old Testament. So, when I was talking with Pastor Scott about the message, he said, you know, at about an hour and a half, they get tired. (laughs) I think that's about right. So, I'll do my best, Pastor, to fit into an hour and a half. And it reminds me of a time I was serving a church in North Carolina. We lived in Wake Forest, North Carolina for a number of years, and I was serving a church there. And uh, you know, I, I got up to preach, and I, you know, I did the joke, you know, an hour and a half, and this, this, this guy in the back said, well, pastor, you can go as long as you want. I'm leaving at noon. <laughs> so, if you got to go, by all means. Hosea. Okay. Hosea, chapter one. I love this. What you need to know about the book of Hosea, Hosea is a prophet in the eighth century. Some of his rough contemporaries are the prophets Isaiah, Amos, Micah. Those are some rough contemporary prophets. It was a heady time in the 8th century. That's when Hosea is preaching. That's around, oh, 700s B.C. Okay, that's the 8th century B.C. And Hosea is preaching during this time, as is Isaiah, Micah, Amos. These are different kinds of prophets, but Hosea is not quite as extensive as some of these other prophets. He's not extensive like uh, Jeremiah, which is the longest book in the Old Testament. He's not uh, extensive like Isaiah, which has 66 books. He's not extensive like Ezekiel with 48 books. He only has about 14 chapters in his book. And his starts a book of 12 prophets called the Minor Prophets. Now, these Minor Prophets start with Hosea and end with Malachi, or what we know to be the Italian prophet, Malachi, right? (laughs) Malachi. No, he's not Italian. Don't, Don't put that in your notes, right? But these 12 prophets are often called the minor prophets, not because of their significance or insignificance. It only has to do with the size of the books. They're smaller than the major prophets, the major prophets being Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Those are the biggies, right? The minor prophets are smaller in comparison, but listen, make no mistake about it, they are not minor in message. They're major in message. And so, everybody, I want you to hear me this morning. God has a word to speak to you, to me, and to all of us together today. A major message about relationships. And today we discover this relationship in Hosea. Now, I'm reading the entire first chapter, beginning in verse 1, so read with me. And you'll have to forgive me. Uh, You know, in the past two years in, in the COVID era, this happened, okay? This is what presidenting during this time does to you, okay? So I'll be asking you to follow along, or if you don't have a Bible, uh, follow along on the screen. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and to Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. Stop. 
Notice how many kings are there. Well, we've got kings of the south, Judah, and the kings of the north, Israel, right? What does this tell us? Well, first of all, it tells us that there is a divided kingdom. After the reign of King Solomon, what happened is the kingdom of God's people split into the north and the south, the first civil war. And what we see from really the book of Kings, first and second Kings, is the kings in the north were generally faithless towards God, and the kings of the south were generally sometimes faithful to God. But by the end of first and second Kings, there's a heart problem amongst both kingdoms. First of all, the northern kingdom is wiped out in 722 B.C., and by the end of second Kings, the southern kingdom is wiped out as well by 586 B.C. And why does the book of Kings tell us that the north and the south are wiped out? Why? Because they have a heart problem. They lack faithfulness to their first love, God himself. But here in the 8th century, the prophet preaches. And the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are still around. But as we'll see, the north is bound for trouble. Verse 2. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said this to him, Go, marry a woman of promiscuity. Some of your versions will read a woman of whoredom or uh, uh, prostitution, some versions read. Wantonness, some versions will read. Go marry a woman of promiscuity. Have children of promiscuity, for the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. So what God does is he asks or actually commands Hosea, the prophet, and you know, Hosea's name is interesting. It literally means uh, God delivers or saves. Isn't that interesting? Because his life is going to have to live up to his namesake. And so he says, go and marry this woman, Gomer. Now, Gomer is a woman of promiscuity. And what that means is, uh, we don't know whether she was a prostitute or or whatever, but at at any rate, she's, uh, she's enjoying life a little bit. And she's got a lot of lovers. In the first three chapters, actually chapter one and three in Hosea, we see that she is promiscuous. She's got a lot of lovers. And by chapter 3, she goes back after Hosea marries her. She goes back to lovers. So even during their relationship, it's, uh, it's not a pretty sight. And God says, I want you to go marry this woman. Now look at the rationale. You can see it there in verse 2. I want you to go marry this woman of promiscuity and have children for, and that circle that, why is God commanding Hosea do this for the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. In other words, Hosea is going to do this as a sign to signify God's relationship with his people and the people's infidelity to God. Wow. Now, God's asked me to do some strange things, but put yourselves in the shoes of Hosea. Let me ask you a question. If God asked you to do something like that, are you ready to go? Sign me up. Put me in, coach. I'm I'm ready. 
We underestimate the significance of the command, but here Hosea is called to do what seems to be the unthinkable. His very life was to be a living witness to God's love and God's relationship with His people. Would you do the same? Now, what's interesting is Hosea the prophet knew what this thing was because we see similar kinds of sign actions among the prophets. The prophets are often called to do weird stuff, be odd for God. This definitely qualifies. But, you know, I mean, uh, Isaiah, God told him to run around naked. Pastor, don't get any ideas. Isaiah did that. Jeremiah, he told him to wear uh, basically a diaper, then take it off and bury it for a few years, and then dig it up and wear it again. That's definitely weird. Ezekiel had to lay on his side and then turn over and lay on the other side. He told the prophets sometimes they couldn't mourn over the death of their wife. In other cases, he said, you can't marry at all. These sign actions are there to remind us that the prophet is really not about themselves. The prophet is a spokesman or a spokesperson for God, and their very lives or their death signify the message of the Lord. And here, Hosea is called to do the unthinkable. And what happens? Verse 3, I love this. Now, it's not like Jeremiah. Jeremiah, you get a lot of call and response like, oh, why are you making me do this, Hosea? No. It's just, here's the command, go do this, and look at verse 3. So, he went and married Gomer, daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel, or Jezreel, for in a little while, I'll bring the blood of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again. So that's son number one or child number one, Jezreel. She conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, name her, I love this name, lo Ruhuma. Why? For I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. Lo Ruhamah actually means no compassion. I will certainly take them away, but I will have compassion on the house of Judah, that is the southern kingdom of Judah. And I will deliver them by the Lord their God. I will not deliver them by bow, sword, or war, or by horses and cavalry. Verse 8. After Gomer had weaned, Lo Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. So, son, Yezreel, daughter, Lo Ruhamah, and then son. And what's this little boy's name? Lo Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Now, let's press pause here, verses 1 through 9. Three children. I love this. How many of you named your child, if you have children, after some sort of significant thing? It might be a name of God, right? Uh, you know, I knew someone, they named their child, uh, you know, Sarah Beth, and it was like, a, it's supposedly, princess of God or something, right? We named our sons after, uh, and daughters after family members, 
Okay, there's significance there. My, my family named me Heath. Why? Because the name Heath in Old English means weeds. <laughs> Thanks, Mom and Dad. Weeds. They just like the sound of it. I don't know what to tell you. But these names of these kids, oh my goodness. Yezreel literally means God has sown. And what do you do with sowing seed? You sow seed into the ground so it'll die. Ugh. Lo ruhamah, no compassion. Could you imagine? Little lo ruhamah, first of all, that sounds a bit like child abuse, right? My goodness, what kind of name is that? Come here, little no compassion. I mean, and the next one, oh, that, that last son. Come here, little not my people. Does he belong to you? No, not my people. <laughs> Names are significant. We see this in other prophets as well. Isaiah has uh, children, and uh, talking about challenge name of children, one of Isaiah's child's names is Mahershalal Hashbaz. Hasten the plunder, quicken the spoil. Judgment's coming. Similarly, these names of these children are signifying judgment. God is going to destroy the northern kingdom. And in 722 BC, that's exactly what God does. He raises up the Assyrian army, and like a giant anaconda moving up the Tigris-Euphrates down to Syria and Damascus through what is modern-day Lebanon and modern-day Israel, that's exactly what happens. The Assyrians swallow up the northern kingdom and wipe the northern kingdom off the map in 722 B.C. And this is exactly what Hosea is prophesying. Judgment is coming. That's why the names of the children. Well, great message. See you guys next week. Is that the end? No, that's not the end. Look at verse 10. But, or yet, the number of the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or counted. And in the place where they were told, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And the Judeans and the Israelites will be gathered together, that is, after Israel is destroyed, somehow, some way, God is going to join Israel and Judah back together, and they will appoint for themselves a single ruler, that is, one king, and we know his name, Jesus, and go up from the land, for the day of Jezreel will be great. Jezreel now it doesn't mean death, it means life. And look at the next verse. Call your brothers, Ami, my people. And call your sisters, not ru, lo ruhama, but ruhama, which is compassion. So in verses 10 through 2, chapter 2, verse 1, there's this radical transformation from judgment to redemption, from judgment to salvation. Now, this passage of Scripture teaches us, first and foremost, something about God. And that's the word that we need to hear today. First of all, from this passage, we hear that God is the lover. The lover. God is the lover. 
We know this because as the book opens and as Hosea is called to go uh, uh, marry Gomer, we, re- we learn that there's almost like this double trajectory at work. On the one hand, you have Hosea and Gomer. This guy, prophet Hosea, going to marry this woman, Gomer. And Hosea is called to love this woman and marry her despite her infidelity. Love her, serve her despite her infidelity. That's Hosea and Gomer. And then on this other trajectory, you've got this other relationship that illustrates, in Hosea and Gomer, illustrates this other relationship. And that's the relationship between God and His people. Now, why... Would God do this? First of all, He wants God's people to understand uh, they don't have a contractual relationship with God. They have a covenant relationship with God. See, marriage is a covenant. It's not a contract. A contract is like a a Verizon bill or a Verizon, or maybe that's not your jam. Maybe it's AT&T or Sprint or whatever it is, U.S. Cellular. In those contracts, two perfect strangers who have no relationship come together, and I go into an AT&T store, and I say, I want a phone. And they say, okay, $5,000 later, you have your phone. Now, how do we define the relationship? In relationships, sometimes you need to define that relationship. Well, the relationship is defined in the contract, right? And if I fulfill the terms of the contract and pay money every month, then I get to keep the phone and use the service, right? But what happens if AT&T breaks the terms of the contract and provides shoddy service? Nothing. So what happens when in the contract, these two parties somehow get into a disagreement? I say, well, they're not providing good service. Or AT&T says, well, you're not paying your bill. Then what happens is you enter into a dispute. And one party sues the other or sends out collections for the other. And pretty soon, if the dispute isn't resolved, the, the court has to step in and do something. And then what happens after that, guess what? The terms of the contract dissolve and people go their own way. Is covenant like that? No. First of all, God already knew Israel. They were already in relationship. And God brought them together in a covenant relationship to, yes, define the relationship, but rather provide stipulations on how this relationship's going to look in the future. And even if Israel disobeys the covenant, do you think God's going to give up on His plans for His people? No. In fact, God says, with this covenant with Israel because of Abraham, He says, look, you are a people who are supposed to glorify my name, bless I'll bless you, I'll make your name great, so that in turn you're going to bless the nations. How so? By proclaiming God's name amongst the nations. That's the covenant relationship. And the closest thing that God can get to display this covenant relationship is found here in Hosea 1 through 3. It is marriage. And even if one party, Gomer slash Israel, is unfaithful, guess what? God's going to be faithful. He's going to discipline waywardness and sin, 
But as we see in chapter 1, verses 10 through chapter 2, verse 1, that's not the end of the story. God loves even to the uttermost. He's not going to let his loved one go. God's a lover. My friends, God loves us. Now, what's interesting is you know that. Maybe you've forgotten it. How many of you know John 3.16? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Why did God send Christ the Son into the world? Because you were perfect. No, that's not what it says. Why did God send His Son into the world? Uh, Because you were so good. Because you had a a perfect SAT score. Uh, Because you live in Florida. Uh, Because you live by the beach. Because you like fish. Because you have white skin or black skin. No. There is nothing that we do or could do that could make God love us less. And there's nothing that we could do to make God love us more. He loves us. And it's out of His love that He sent Christ to enter into a relationship, not just a tip of your hat on a Sunday morning relationship, a living, vibrant relationship where His love impacts every aspect of our lives. See, that's what Israel forgot. God loved them. So God enters into their world by showing them Hosea and Gomer. Israel, you're like Gomer. But I am God the lover, and I'm not going to let you go. Now, I love this. God made us to live into relationship with Him, particularly a relationship that then flows out into the other aspects of life. When you look at the screen there, you'll see God made us in Genesis, it's recorded, God made us to live in relationship with Him. This is God's design. And what happens when we live in a proper relationship with the Lord, what happens is all of a sudden our other relationships begin to find their place. Our relationship with one another, our relationship with work and family and politics and everything else, our relationship with ourselves. Instead of loathing what God has made, we begin to love who God has died to save and begin to live our lives for Him. And we begin to have a healthy self-image. When we forsake our first love, and the first love is the Lord God, when we begin to forsake our Lord God, our first love, then sin enters into our lives, and it begins to corrupt and twist and destroy all the other relationships. Now, that's why you see the the red on all of those. When our primary love is lost, all the other relationships take a, a, a turn. So let me ask you a question. This is a good diagnostic question. How are you with the Lord? And a good way to ask that question is, how are you in your other relationships? See, what the prophets did in the Old Testament, the prophets, God sent them like a warning light on the dashboard of Israel's life. 
And as they were driving down the the road of life, this warning light came on and said, engine failure, engine failure, engine failure. You've forsaken your first love, engine failure. Look, you're defrauding your neighbor. You're committing injustice. Society is breaking down, engine failure, engine failure. And the prophets preach, calling God's people back to the relationship with their Lord God. My friends, are there warning lights going across the dashboard of your life? See, our our relationship with God drives everything else. Sin in one and sin crops up in others. If this is true, what does that mean for you and me? Well, it's basically this. In our relationships, particularly our relationship with God, status quo is a no-go. Either you're growing and developing and maturing or... You're not. And when God's people failed to mature and grow and develop, listen, what God did is He raised up judgment for them. Now, this judgment was to discipline them and chastise them so that they would come to their senses and come back to God. That was the aim with Gomer. Love this woman of promiscuity and so that she'll come to her senses and love you. The sad reality is Gomer kept being unfaithful, signifying the unfaithfulness of Israel. But did God let them go? No. John 3, 16. God didn't come to condemn the world. This is John 3, 17. But give life to the Son. Why? Because of His great love. My friends, God wants to have relationship in all, with us in all of our lives. So I'm married, my wife Jill, we've been married over 20 years now. What if I were to say to Jill, hey, I love you so much, baby, I'm going to love you 90% of the time, just give me 10% to mess around. I love you. Well, after the, the uh, drop kick on my head that she does, she would remind me that that is not what marriage is about. It is 100% commitment. We are one flesh. My life is not my own. Her life is not her own. What was two, God has made one. My friends, here's the reality. When God calls us into a relationship with Him, our lives are not our own. I like the way that one theologian says it. He says, there's not one square inch over the whole domain of creation where Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, mine. Oftentimes, what we like to say is, well, I'll give God this, but reserve this for myself. I'll give God this, but reserve politics for myself. I'll give God this, but I'll I'll let this website be for myself. I'll give God this. I'll give Him Sunday morning, but the rest of life is mine. My friends, what we've got to do is learn that God is the lover of our souls, and He owns all of our lives. Why? Because He paid for it with His shed blood on the cross. So what we've got to do is learn to hear God's voice instead of the world's, world's voice in all of life. I'll show it to you there on the screen. If you look at this image on the screen, you see God's voice is calling to every aspect of our lives, not just on the Sunday morning on the top level. God wants every aspect of our lives, not just our families. He wants all of us. He wants it all. Why? Jesus is king of it all. And when Israel forgot, 
Our lives belong to God. And they begin to follow this idol or follow that idol or commit injustice in this way or defraud their neighbor in this way. Then what happened? God called them to account for failing in their first love. And you might be saying, Heath, why is there a jagged line? Well, it's jagged because it's messy. Life is messy. The reality is probably you and I are listening to God's voice and loving Him well in certain areas, but in other areas, we've kind of gone on coast. Can I just encourage you, my friends? All of life belongs to God. All of life belongs to God, and we seek relationship with God in all of our lives. We find our first love once again. What happens is, is God opens us up to all of the gifts that we have in life. And what are some of the gifts that God has given us? Here's one, forgiveness, so that we can have relationship with God. What about peace and joy and purpose and eternity with God? These are gifts that God has given, not out of uh, the fact that we deserve them, because, because of God's great love. God is the lover. So have you given your whole life to God? Are you listening to His voice? God is our lover. He longs to have a relationship with you and me. But God is also the lion. There are two places in the Old Testament, or in the book of Hosea, where God is depicted as the lion. This lion image occurs in chapter 5, verse 14, where it's a picture of God tearing uh, His people apart like a lion. Yikes. Well, what's that signify? Judgment. Lo ami, yezreel. Lo ruhamah. That's judgment. God the lion in judgment. But my friend... God doesn't just judge sin. We also see the other side of God. There's a second image in chapter 11 where God is also the lion. In chapter 11, verses 10 through 11, listen, my friends. God is the lion who roars in His holiness and draws the people back to their place in His love. This is Isaiah, or, uh, Hosea chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 as well, where you see these people who were not my people are now Ami, my people. These who were not my people are now the children or the sons of the living God. God redeems His people. This is the lion who judges His people's sin, <laughs> but redeems them in His love. God. I like how C.S. Lewis describes Him. God, who comes at us with infinite speed, lover and lion. Do you know him today? Do you? If you don't, I have good news. You can. And you can find the relationship that you've been longing for and the peace that he wants to bring, the forgiveness he has on offer, and the life, life he wants to give. We'll have ministers here, and you can talk to them. I'm going to ask you to stand. Lord, whatever it is you want to say to us today, and however it is you want us to respond, our answer today is yes. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your love.
In Christ's name, amen.